Two and a Half Admins, episode 29. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, it's almost customary now, Alan. What are you plugging this week? Uh, this week we have an article on the history of ARM and FreeBSD. So if you're interested in the ARM architecture and things that aren't x86, it's worth checking out. And that's something that your company specializes in, right? Yes. Uh, we've been doing a lot of work on getting uh, FreeBSD to be a, a first-class platform on the ARM servers and things like that. All right, well, link in the show notes. So I wanted to talk to you guys about an article that you wrote recently, Jim, where you were tasked with building a gaming PC, but then that was impossible, so you had to go for a pre-built one. Now, this doesn't just apply to gaming PCs. We're not just talking about graphics cards here. Right now, as we found ourselves towards the end of Q1 2021, it is almost impossible to get any sort of decent computing gear. We're about a year into this COVID thing now. What's going on here? You didn't quite get the situation right with the uh, Ars Technica article. The problem is that, uh, you know, the powers that be in the Ars Orbiting HQ came to me and said, Jim, we want you to write a gaming PC build guide, but we have a special spin we want you to put on it. Things that you can buy right now. And I laughed because like it, I, that's not a thing. I can't do that. They're, I can't tell people, and you can go buy this right now because that changes, you know, day to day. Trying to build PCs right now is very much the art of what you can find and when you can find it. And yeah, you're right. GPUs are some of the worst, but um, it's not just GPUs by any means. It's hard to find the GPU that you want, not just on the high end, on the low end too. It, I mean, there's times that I can find an RTX 3080, but I can't for the life of me, you know, get like a simple GTX 1060 for a low end machine, much less anything even cheaper than that. Just everything sells out. Uh, there are problems getting CPUs, motherboards, power supplies, webcams. Good Lord. I, I hope you I hope you don't insist on a low end Logitech because you won't get one. Computer cases can be very hard to find. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Like uh, I was trying to get my dad to a mid range Logitech with about two weeks notice in order to attend a virtual funeral. And that was a tall order, apparently. There was absolutely nothing available at all. Uh, there was some, you know, way overpriced knockoff things. But, you know, eventually ordering direct from Logitech via their website shipped about three weeks later, finally. You know, with this, they didn't even acknowledge the order for like a week and then they finally did and, and shipped it. It was, it was crazy. Yeah. You can get the really high end Logitech stuff, you know, like the things that, uh, uh, big money vloggers use, you know, the Brios and whatnot. You can get those, but anything in like the $120 and down range for Logitech. Yeah. Like the, the C920 range that was well, the thing I recommended to everybody for years. And there are, Three of them adorning the top of my monitor right now. <laughs> yeah, and there are three of them for sale in the entire world right now. Um, now, the good news about that is that, uh, you know, there are actually a ton of very good random Chinese brands you've never heard of right now. They're not as good as Logitech, but they have at least gotten up to the standards of as good or better than the, you know, typical crap integrated into a laptop. And the the first range of them that became available, you know, when the pandemic hit, Oh, they were way worse than that. They were like, you know, Joe Resington levels of garbage. And let me tell you, if you guys never video chatted with Joe before somebody gave him a new webcam, you really missed out. Yeah, it was like 90s style that 
brown, greeny. It was terrible, but then I got given a brio, so today I learned that I'm a high-end vlogger. <laughs> but, you know, more to the point that you're getting at, um, yeah, the supply chain is completely hosed, man. I mean, so we had the pandemic just completely closing down Wuhan for months, which meant that you had, you know, a month's deep dent in the global supply of parts. And, and normally... Parts don't just get manufactured in China and show up on somebody's, you know, doorstep just in time the next day. Uh, you know, they get manufactured and they get stockpiled and, you know, people purchase out of the stockpiles. Well, with, you know, China closed off for months, all the stockpiles went empty. And now we're in a position of not only having to fill up the stockpiles while people are still ordering and trying to fulfill orders that they needed months ago. We're also dealing with the results of the pandemic, you know, on our side of the pond as well, where, you know, we've got literally millions of children who need computers for virtual school who didn't have them. Yeah. Or even just people stuck home with the pandemic and wanted a new computer. And just the overall volume is is just out of whack with with normal. Yeah, it's just through the roof. And, you know, you, you look at all the folks that who are remote working now who weren't before. A, a lot of those folks may need computer equipment genuinely for remote work, but uh, come on, we all know gamers, right? There's going to be a significant portion of those folks who have realized, maybe I can get away with more gaming during the day now. <laughs> yeah, or maybe work's going to pay for a giant monitor. Yeah, well, a lot of companies gave a budget, didn't they, for this is your home working setup budget, and people... And in Canada, they even added a, a tax write-off for working from home. If you had to work from home for at least like four weeks... During the year or whatever, you can get a $400 tax rebate. Nice. So ultimately what this all came down to is, uh, you know, once I was once I was done laughing at people for suggesting that I write a, you know, build it with what you can buy right now guide, the answer that made everybody as close to happy as we were going to get is a guide on buying the pre-built system that you can right now. Because what few GPUs are out there on the high end, Dell and Lenovo and HP have pretty much cornered the entire market on them. So while you can't just go out and get the CPU that you want and the motherboard that you want and the high-end RTX or Radeon that you want, you can buy a pre-built system from one of the big OEMs that has those things. Now, even then, what you can buy will literally be different from one day to the next, but at least you've narrowed it down to like, all right, I just have to look at what three people have in stock and, you know, click buy now. What sort of premium are you going to pay, though, over buying the parts individually? pretty massive in theory, except you can't buy the parts individually. Mm. Um, and even if you could right now, you'd be paying scalpers prices for them. So are you talking about the premium over what you could have bought it for in 2019? <laughs> or are you talking about a premium over what you can buy it for now? Because there is no premium over what you can buy it for now. Well, I suppose premium over what the parts should be if they were in stock, but that's just a nonsensical thing to say, right? Because they're not in stock. Exactly. Uh, MSRP is a lie. Stock is a lie. You, you you pay for what you can get when you can get it. Yeah, and especially uh, video cards. It's like this card didn't exist back when they were stock. Although a lot of them did exist back when they were stock, and either they're just as hard to get as the other ones are. Yeah, and even before that, it's like the prices went way out of whack. Like so, right around Christmas, I I won uh, a Ryzen seven fifty eight hundred X via AMD's contest on Twitter. So I was like, all right, I have this new CPU without realizing that, you know, everybody else that wanted that CPU just couldn't buy it. It wasn't available anywhere. Uh, but then when I tried to buy, you know, a motherboard to plug it into, it was a huge hassle trying to find one that it's like, oh, you got to get one that has the feature where you can flash it without the CPU in it because you'll need to upgrade it to 
a newer BIOS to be able to run that brand new CPU, but also find somewhere one that's in stock and it's not $700. It's like, well, that turns out to have been a lot more difficult than I was used to. And even just, I wanted some RAM for it. And it's like, I can't buy any of the brands I like because they're just not in stock. It's like, I have to get some not brand I've never heard of, but not the brand I would normally buy. Yeah. I, I built a machine for a, a client recently. Um, he's the owner of, of one of the businesses that I serve. And uh, yeah, this is just a kind of a, a generic, you know, moderately high-end home PC. No gaming focus, no, no nothing. And it ended up being almost $500 more expensive than, in my opinion, it should have been, in part because the only way that I could get him video was, you know, by way of a GTX 1660 graphics card that was all I could get at the moment and was way overpriced for what it was. Dude doesn't even do any gaming. He would have been fine with, you know, the cheapest thing from six or seven years ago, but you can't get the cheapest thing from six or seven years ago. You're stuck with, you know, whatever you can buy like this week, this month. The free market stuff says that, you know, if there's such a demand for GPUs, they could just manufacture more GPUs. But part of it is they know that some of this demand is temporary and it's not worth spooling up additional manufacturing capacity to then be stuck with it after. And, you know, to some degree, the shortage means the prices go up and that's good for them. Now, NVIDIA in particular, uh, they are addressing the demand to some degree by deliberately making their cards less attractive to crypto miners. Well, some versions of their cards, yes, making specifically trying to segment the market into mining and gaming. And that'd be nice because I'd really like to not be using a five generational video card right now, but uh, short of getting on a waiting list by going to a physical store and yelling out my information from the door because you're not allowed to go inside, there's no way for me to, they're not accepting online backorders because of bots. So you have to go to a store in person to get on a waiting list to maybe someday get a GPU. Not that he's salty about it. Well, I wanted to put a Ryzen system together, but I just decided I'm just going to wait. My Intel system is good enough. It's, you know, whatever. Yeah, I almost did that, but I'm like, but but then that AM, the Ryzen sitting there on my desk is going to sit and taunt me forever. Also, you know, let's be clear here. Joe didn't decide that Intel was good enough. He decided that being able to get a generation old i9 Intel off of eBay and cram it into the motherboard he already had with the RAM he already had was good enough. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you'd have been so happy just running out and buying a brand new Intel system, even if you could. Yeah, that uh, reminds me of the point I wanted to make. I saw uh, Newegg doing bundle deals. It's like, here's the video card you want, like a GTX 3060 for a reasonable price. <laughs> but it's only available bundled with this Intel GPU you probably really don't want. Intel CPU, you mean? C yeah, Intel CPU. It was like a 1070 or 10700 or whatever. Some slightly middle of the road 10th gen Intel i7 for rather a lot of money and it was the only way to get the video card was to buy it as the bundle with mm. the i7 you probably didn't want that's also something i had to tackle in uh pretty gross detail for this buying guide and uh like if all you want to do is build a gaming rig and it's actually a dedicated gaming rig and i7 10700 is perfectly cromulent for that um you're not really going to see much of any difference in frame rates or anything else in most games from more cpu than that where you really do want more CPU is, uh, you know, 
when it's not really just a gaming rig, which to be honest, most people's aren't. I don't know that many people who have a completely separate dedicated gaming rig they use like a PlayStation. The folks that I know are gaming on their daily driver. And, you know, even the ones that do have a dedicated gaming rig, they're usually streaming from it as well. And in either one of those cases, you want a lot more CPU firepower than just the game demands, or you will start to pay for it when gaming. Even an i5 is fine for dedicated standalone gaming. Yeah, the games can only push so much and, you know, they offload as much as they can to the GPU as it is. Yeah, now the GPU is the heart and soul of AAA gaming. If you look at TimeSpy GPU-only scores and you compare those to, like, for example, Battlefield at, you know, 1440p resolution and ultra quality, you know, FPS, it is a direct correlation. The CPU hardly makes any difference at all. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit and 60 days to use it. Linode offers cloud computing solutions in data centers all over the world. Whether it's scalable VMs with a choice of major distros or one-click apps and stacks, dedicated CPU and high RAM instances, block and object storage, or cloud firewalls and DDoS protection, Linode has everything you need for your personal projects right up to managed enterprise infrastructure. I recently moved my website over to Linode and it was really straightforward. And when I needed a mumble server for our late night Linux community meetups, spinning up a new VM for that was an absolute breeze. Everything's been running flawlessly since I set it up and I love the peace of mind I get from the automatic backups. So go to linode.com slash two and a half, get your $100 credit and check out Linode's great cloud hosting services and first class always available support. That's linode.com slash two and a half. All right, let's do some free consulting then. If you want to send your questions in for Jim and Alan, show at 2.5admins.com is the best way. And thank you everyone who's supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate it. If you want to support us, then go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed, so do check it out. So, Victor writes to us, I have a free NAS at home that crashed due to a power outage. I'm new to ZFS, and I have spent the last few weeks reading, including Alan's book, and learning a lot about ZFS to fix the issue. It looks like the pool became corrupt and resulted in constant kernel panics, and then he talked about his lengthy fix that he had to go through. The whole process was very painful for someone who had no knowledge of ZFS, and it seems that everywhere I turned for help, like FreeNAS Forum and IRC and RZFS, people were not willing to help. I think this makes the accessibility to ZFS very difficult for newcomers. Do you guys have any tips or advice on how to get help on ZFS issues, taking into consideration that not everyone is as skilled and knowledgeable as you two, Jim and Alan? Well, that's why you pay someone like Jim or Alan to help you. <laughs> um, it's, it's kind of weird to be like, yeah, I went on the internet, expected help for free. It's like, to a certain degree, yes, people are willing to give you general help and advice, but it's like, I've encountered this very specific situation, which I've gotten myself into, and I would like somebody to just fix it for me. But for free is a bit weird. I don't disagree with you, but I don't, I don't think I'm going to paint Victor specifically with that brush. Uh, I, yeah, yeah, I remember when he popped up on RZFS. And the, the issue there was not that nobody was willing to help him. It's that, you know, this was... This is not an issue that is, you know, simplistic to the point of just tossing off a couple of easy answers, you know, in a subreddit. I think that a lot of people who come new to ZFS have this impression 
that, oh, you know, file systems just get corrupt and that's normal and there's like an FSCK tool and that'll probably fix it and it'll be fine. And they get upset when ZFS doesn't have something like that. And the difference is not that, oh, ZFS doesn't have a file system check tool. How sucky is that? The difference is that if it could be fixed that easily, it wouldn't be broken on ZFS to begin with. If you have a pool corruption issue on ZFS, it is a major problem, and it's not something that you're likely going to get an easy fix out of, you know, anywhere, let alone across the internet. You're into territory where the sensible response is, well, that's screwed up. I'm going to have to go to backup. And if you didn't have backup, well, then we're right back to what Alan and I are constantly preaching on this show is you have to have a backup. ZFS is no substitute for backup. Yeah. If there aren't three copies of it, it doesn't actually exist. You know, if you're a home user, I'm not even going to stick them hardcore to that whole three copies thing. Two copies is a backup. It's not two backups. And if you're not paying attention to it, you can still screw yourself. But I don't think it's helpful to tell people that, you know, it doesn't exist if there's not three copies in a, a home use environment. Right. I mean, if, if it's important enough to you to care, like if it's really important, there should be three copies of it. I think it's maybe a slightly less cynical way to say it. There should at least be two is the point, you know, and and you should be sure of both of those two. That's the other big thing is, you know, it, it's not a backup if you just wave chicken feathers over the altar every now and then. Like you have to actually make certain that your backups are happening and the data on those backups is good and, you know, know what your procedures are and how old they are so that, you know, you know, if something does go completely pear shaped, I can go back to backup. And if you don't have that, then you're going to lose data and there's not going to be any way back from it. The thing that I'm very happy for here is that Victor apparently did manage to recover a lot of his data. He had to import the pool read-only and then do a ZFS replication from that to a not broken pool and, and his data was fine. Yeah. The complexity can be if he didn't have a recent snapshot, then it gets more complicated. So maybe you should always have a recent snapshot. Always having snapshots. I mean, not just a recent snapshot, you know, have a good depth of snapshots, you know, that exactly be able to go back to a point in time, preferably both in, you know, your, your production and on your backup. If you discover that you got ransomware on your system three days ago, you should be able to go back to that three days ago before period and, you know, be able to, even if you don't roll back entirely to it, you know, have the option of cherry picking things, you know, from a range of times so that you can do the best job recovering from your issue. As far as Victor's solution and his problem went, I couldn't have helped him with that because I would not have recovered directly in production from that. I would have gone back from backup immediately. I'd have been like, oh, this is a crap pool. Screw that. Restore from backup. Done. Okay, Chris writes to us, I want to know more about home networking. I got the Seed Odyssey and hope to use a BSD, I'm new here, or Ubuntu, I'm normally a Mint user, to make a home router as a learning experience. For the sake of internet access uptime for my family, at first I was going to leave the ISP router in situ and use the Odyssey behind it, so users can fall forward to the ISP router if necessary. When I can keep the uptime high, I think I would take out the ISP router. Is this double router arrangement a bad idea, and does it confuse things having LAN IPs behind LAN IPs? I'm going to go ahead and give this a short answer, given the scope that we're looking at here, and say, yes, it's a bad idea. What you're talking about is double NAT, um, you can have some fairly uncommon general networking issues when you've got two layers of NAT that you're going through. 
uh, to and from the internet. But more importantly, it means that you've got a much clunkier situation where you've like, if you've got anything that you need to port forward through from the internet, you're gonna have to port forward it through in matching configurations in two places. It's going to be unwieldy and it's, it's going to kind of suck. You've also got two separate points of failure. Now things can break either because your ISP router broke or because your internal router broke rather than just having one. A better idea here would be to, you know, maybe save a config for your ISP router that would work, but just save that where you can restore it quickly if you need to. Um, put in your own router and set everything up so that your own router is the whole thing and just know that you've got that quick, you know, panic mode. Well, I can just, you know, hit the config restore on the ISP router to get my LAN IPs back that I'm looking for. Because the other thing is, you know, what you're talking about with having this double net, it's not really going to work the way you want it to, to just easily unplug your router and have everything be fine on the ISP. Because in order to do this double net, you've got to have two different subnets. Like your ISP router might be delivering 192.168.1.0 and your internal router is now going to have to be 192.168.2. So if you just unplug yours, all kinds of stuff is going to be broken because your whole subnet changed. Yeah, if you were going to do this, it, I wouldn't recommend it as a newbie because you're going to want to try to take over the DHCP and keep serving the ISP machine as the default gateway and then at some point transition it and basically only have one subnet the whole time and it gets a lot more complicated and is not the newbie setup you're looking for. Now, if you just want to learn about setting it up, VMs might be the right answer. Like when we taught the concepts of, of routing like this uh, at the community college, basically you would stand up a bunch of VMs and then rig up the networking in VirtualBox or uh, VMware or whatever you were using so that client A and client B had a local only network that went into different interfaces on the router VM. And then the router VM is the only one that had a connection that was actually natted out through the host to the internet or whatever. And you could actually, you know, configure it to pass packets between the network of client A and the network of client B and learn all the things about it, but in a way that doesn't end up messing with your home network. Once you've got that all down, Pat, and you understand all the concepts, then you can replace your home router and not have to worry about your family suffering through you learning how to do it under fire. If Alan talking about, you know, this, this completely virtual infrastructure and all these machines, you know, nested is kind of giving you hives, another option is, uh, you know, just go get a cheap consumer router like uh, TP-Link Archer A7 or, you know, whatever their their current is these days. You know, spend like 70 bucks on this thing. Set it up the way that you want it to be to serve your family. And then you can set up your homebrew router to serve the same subnet in the same ways. And you can swap the two out. Keep that Archer, that TP-Link Archer, keep it configured. Just keep it ready to go. Unplug that sucker, put it in a drawer. If you wedge yourself, you know, into some kind of a panic with something you didn't understand and can't fix right away on your homebrew, then just unplug it, plug the Archer back in, everybody will be immediately good to go. Again, slightly more advanced, but thing I've done in a situation like that is log into the ISP router or whatever and just turn off the DHCP service and run your own. So your machine uses the router as the way out, but you serve DHCP via your machine and, and control things. But I think Jim's idea is a lot easier. I'm also not a big fan of taking the DHCP service off of the router, to be honest. Right. The main reason I was doing it is I still wanted to use the router for its Wi-Fi. Yeah. I just, it, it, I, I'm kind of a stickler for separation of services into, you know, sane and sensible 
logical blocks, basically. Mm-hmm. It pissed me off even when Microsoft's MCSE training, you know, led thousands of techs to do things like run the DHCP service on the, you know, Windows small business server rather than on the router. And it's like, yeah. dude, no, why? You know, now the server goes down and the internet's broken too. It just, no. Because, you know, if the router's broken, everything's going to be broken, period. So it kind of makes sense to have those eggs in a basket. Right. So in, in my situation, it was the router was now my computer and the old TP-Link was literally just an access point. Yeah. Chris also said that he's currently running a pie hole, but that could be replaced by services on the router box. And he wanted advice on that. Should he put that on the router or on his home file and media server in a separate jail or container? He should probably just keep running it as a pie hole until he really feels confident about some replacement for that. There's not going to be a gigantic benefit to moving that stuff, you know, from the pie onto the router or onto a home server. It can be done so that he can free the pie up for something else, but it sounds like he's got enough on his plate for learning for right now. I think the biggest thing is small steps and and don't just dive into the deep end because it can end up discouraging you a bit. Uh, and, you know, a lot of this stuff all fits together. So learning a little bit of a time means that now you can go back and, you know, something you did before, but didn't quite understand how it worked will now click as you learn the next thing and the next thing. And you keep building these blocks together. All right. Wouter says, I bought a Dell tower server with a Xeon and 64 gigs of EEC RAM. It will eventually replace my low powered ARM based Synology. Besides four spinning disks in the Dell, I've also installed two SSDs, which I want to run in a mirror for redundancy. I would like to use them to house the OS, containers, and VMs. Because the latter two possibly contain sensitive data, I want the storage to be encrypted. ZFS seems like a good solution. Because the installers don't support it out of the box, is running root on encrypted ZFS with Debian or Ubuntu worth the hassle, or should I go with a more traditional software RAID and Lux, or even ButterFS when that eventually supports encryption. Well, I can tell you this, Vauter, they're not going to recommend ButterFS here. The main problem with encrypted ZFS for the root file system is that your bootloader would need to support it. And as far as I know, Grub doesn't support ZFS encryption. Grub does not support ZFS encryption on the boot pool. It does support it on the root pool. What's the difference between the boot pool and the root pool? The difference between the root file system and you know what's on slash boot. So that's two separate pools on uh, Ubuntu's ZFS installer. Right, because on Ubuntu, you're going to have the RAM disk on boot. And once you load that, you have the real kernel driver and you already have encryption. Yeah, and uh, so you got two pools if you use uh, you know, Ubuntu 2004's automated ZFS installer. Uh, it creates a B pool and an R pool, which are the boot and root pools. And B pool is special. It can't have several feature flags enabled. Basically, if you touch it, you're going to make your system unbootable. But um, you can do pretty much whatever you want to with the with the root pool. And as a matter of fact, I'm looking right now at a uh, a blog post on GitLab.io for doing exactly what uh, Valto wants to do and setting up encryption on ZFS root on Ubuntu 20.04. The advantage of ZFS encryption over something like Lux or Geli on BSD is that you can choose which data sets are encrypted. So you don't have to encrypt the OS and worry about the, you know, supporting the installer or supporting the bootloader. You can choose to just have the OS be it by itself and then have 
the data set that's going to contain the sensitive data be encrypted. The advantage to this is that you don't need to deal with entering a password at boot to be able to, to finish booting uh, by decrypting the root file system and so on. So depending on your use case, uh, like Jim said, it is possible to boot with an encrypted root with ZFS, just not done for you out of the installer. But depending on what you're trying to protect, you can decide to just only encrypt the data set that actually has the sensitive data and not have to worry about doing it to the operating system where that might introduce additional complexity to reboots or upgrades or anything like that. And Valta said specifically that it was the containers and VMs that might contain sensitive data. So uh, it would probably make a lot of sense to just set up a parent data set for both containers and VMs, encrypt that, and then have individual data sets for each container and each VM beneath that. That way, uh, you know, like Alan said, you don't end up having encryption making your day more difficult if something goes wrong with your root file system. Yep. Or, or even just making a reboot uh, more of a pain. Because um, the other big thing is, depending on the use case, what ZFS encryption offers that things like Lux and Gelly don't is the ability, you know, the hard drive encryption is all about what we call encryption at rest. When you're not using the data, it's encrypted, right? So that protects your laptop if it's stolen while it was powered off. Uh, you can't access the data until you put in the password. But if you have a running system like a server, then generally that data is mounted and decrypted and available anyway, and it's not actually helping you. But with a ZFS data set, if you were not using that container all the time, uh, maybe, you know, for example, the billing system uh, we have at my video streaming company works on GPG keys on a, a separate hardware token. And we only plug that in like twice a month to do billing and that's it. And the rest of the time, the keys to actually decrypt people's credit cards are offline and can't be accessed. So if your container is sensitive and doesn't need to be on all the time, you can actually use the ZFS, I think, unload key, I think is the command, and take away the encryption key for that data set, and no one will be able to use that data again until you load key the encryption key again. All right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.